The following sermon is from Christ Church Port Orange. For more information, find us online at joinwithjesus.org. Thanks okay, if you listening. have your Bible, you open to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We are 23 days away from finishing the Bible in six months as a church. For those of you who are still plugging along with us, and um, every week I'm listening to or reading my Bible weekly reading plan. And we did all of John's gospel in the beginning part of the book of Acts. And early this week, as I was listening to the audio version of the Bible, John chapter 5, verses 19 to 29, just jumped out at me and grabbed my attention and shook me like um, somebody on a bus platform who was getting too close. Stop, pay attention here. Now, this is a big deal because I've read John's gospel dozens and dozens of times. And for me, I have always found John chapter five and John chapter six, there's some great little zingers in there, but a lot of it is hard to get through in John's gospel, which is a very easy gospel. But there's a lot of stuff that's happening there that I have found in my own brain that just did not connect very well in my reading of John's gospel. So I haven't preached a lot from John chapter five. Um, we do communion sometimes from John chapter six, but there's some, some hard parts in there if you've never read it before. And so I'm just saying to you, this is not a particularly hot spot for me. If it was John 15, I could preach, I could preach nine weeks from John 15. But this passage in particular jumped out to me. And I really believe the Lord wants to speak to us. And this happened before I was anticipating it being Father's Day. Um, but this particular passage is Jesus responding to the Jews or the Pharisees here who are opposing him for his claim to be God's son. And the sermon title is, Who's Your Father? Somebody say, Who's Your Father? Don't say, who's your daddy? It's, who's your father? Who's your father, okay? Search your heart, Luke. You know it's true. Who's your father? So I want to read John chapter 5, verses 19 to 29, and the sermon's going to be those 11 verses. But in order for this to make sense, because it starts with, so Jesus said to them, you have to kind of know what happened beforehand. So I don't have time to read and go through all the passages of chapter 5 leading up to verse 19, but I want to kind of tell you what's in there. And then I want to give you the mic drop moment from Jesus in verse 17 that kind of sets this up. So here's what happens. Um, John's gospel is the last of the four gospels written. John was likely the youngest disciple of Jesus. He lived the longest and he most likely um, kind of crafted, created, and wrote his gospel throughout the period of his life, but it was finished in its form we have today late in his life, even after the writing of the Revelation. And so this is one of the last books recorded for us of the New Testament. And like, unlike the other three gospels called the synoptic gospels, because they look very similar, they have the same kind of layout plan, they follow a lot of the same events, um, there's a lot of overlap. John's gospel is very different. It's written very different, but it's composed beautifully. John's gospel is, comes to us in kind of two halves, the book of signs, which is chapters one through 12, and then the book of glory, which is chapter 13 and following. And they're very distinct halves. There's a huge time and geography pivot right there in the middle. And they present for us the ministry and the testimony of who Jesus is, followed by the passion of Christ and his death and resurrection and ascension. And so this is what John's gospel is about. Now, John's also writing late in the establishment of the Christian church in the first century. And so he's actually writing to oppose some misconception about Jesus that developed as the Christian church was growing. And so you can imagine this is a new group of people with a new understanding and faith in who God is revealed in Jesus. You have Jews who have converted to Christianity. You have pagans who've converted to Christianity. There's all sorts of questions about the nature of the monotheistic God of the Old Testament now expressed in Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're trying to get their head around who is this Jesus. And there was several kind of 
um, heresies that were popping up. And so John's writing to address those kind of definitively as an eyewitness and a personal acquaintance of Jesus of Nazareth. And so John's gospel is super, super powerful. In John's gospel, he uses numerology very heavily, especially the number seven. So you guys know in John's gospel are the seven I am statements of Jesus. There's actually three sets of seven. Jesus said, I, you know, I am the bread of life and I am the light of the world and I, he, seven I am statements. But he also concluded responses to people investigating who he is with the statement I am, or in Greek, ego, a me, which is the most connected way you could associate yourself with the God of the Old Testament from Exodus chapter three, I am that I am. Not only that, but Jesus would describe himself in a series of events and end a sentence with I am, like before Abraham was, I am. And so there's three sets of seven times Jesus says, I am. And so John is very um, purposefully presenting the deity of Jesus Christ in his gospel in a very, very powerful way. And so he does that through all of these series of seven. And part of that seven is seven signs. So the book of signs contains seven miracles Jesus did. Now Jesus did dozens, if not hundreds of miracles that we can compile. And in fact, John said later in his book that if we were to put all of the miracles that Jesus did into, there wouldn't be volumes to contain all of the things that he did. But John chose seven to demonstrate the identity and power of Jesus in the first half of his book. And so chapter five is the third of those seven signs. And it contains the story of Jesus healing the man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda or Salome. And so if you guys have seen The Chosen, The Chosen does a phenomenal job depicting this scene where Jesus heals this man and really sets up for us artistically um, the hopeless desperation that this man had as he is given, kind of moved away from his ethnic identity as an Israelite, unclean, rejected, um, alone, and to fend for himself at this pagan uh, pool where there's this, this mystical ritual of if you can get, if, if the water is stirred or these gas bubbles come up out of this live spring, if you're the first one in, you'll be healed. And all of these invalids and um, paralytics are all around here, just clawing over each other to try to be the first one in. And the, the chosen really depicts the, the repetition of all the times that he was overlooked and, and trampled. And, and he just comes to this point of complete hopelessness. Now, if you did watch the chosen, there's no record of his name being Jesse and he certainly was not the half-brother of Simon the Zealot. Some of you texted me that question. Is this in the Bible? No, that's artistic license. It's cool, but it's not in the Bible. But the story of this man is in the Bible, and that's what's happening in John chapter five. Now, Jesus heals him and leaves, but he heals him on the Sabbath, and he commands him to take up his mat and walk, which to the Pharisees would have been a breaking of Sabbath ritual by doing work. But Jesus didn't reveal himself to the man he just left, and then the... Jews are interviewing this man and trying to basically say like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have picked up your mat. He's, he's going like, I can walk. <laughs> like, do you understand? Like, we're off base here a little bit if I've been healed and you're worried about what I'm carrying. Um, and they wanna know who it is and they're investigating him. Well, Jesus comes and finds him in the temple later. And in John chapter five and verse 14, it says, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And then check out verse 17. This is powerful from Jesus. But Jesus answered them, my father 
is working until now, and I am working. Now, this is powerful because Jesus could have said, picking up a mat is not in the old covenant. That is your pharisaical law. He could have said, that's a technicality. That's not God's law, right? He could have said, like he did in Luke 14, which ones of you wouldn't do the same thing had you been in this circumstance, right? He could have appealed to their own self-interest, but he doesn't. He says, it's a Sabbath and my father is working and therefore I am in fact working. That's like sticking in the eyeball of the Jews right here, okay? Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Verse 19, so Jesus said to them, and what follows is a monologue from Jesus providing a defense, responding to the two clear charges that the Jews have made and the inference that he is misleading the people. These three charges Jesus responds to. Before we get into those verses, I wanna pray and ask the Lord for his help. God, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you that your word is alive and active, always speaking, always revealing. And Lord, as we have been reading at this hurried pace and experiencing your word in a new way and at a new level, God, I thank you that your word continues to speak to us. God, I thank you for grasping a hold of my attention this past week and bringing us to the point of considering not only for Jesus, but for us, who is our father. And so Lord, as we listen to these words of Jesus and consider the claim that he has made about who he is and who you are and what we are invited to participate in, God, I pray that your divine spirit, your Holy Spirit would give life, that you would cause new life to happen right here as Jesus is preached. We ask for you to speak to us, renew our minds, strengthen our faith, change our hearts, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen. amen. It is Father's Day and I was considering uh, my experience with my dad. I had some stories I was gonna tell in the first service um, and then he showed up to church so I had to tell other ones. <laughs> but uh, it was pretty, pretty funny story. My, my dad um, and I had a working relationship. My dad worked constantly. He had seven kids as a working class dude, he worked in body shops my, in my childhood. And so he didn't make a lot of money, worked very long hours. And so we didn't see him a lot. But when my brother and I were old enough to go to work with him, any days we weren't in school, weekend days and evenings, we would go to the shop with dad. And so we spent a lot of time at the shop and he would put us to work and he would teach us lessons, Mr. Miyagi style. That was what my dad would do. I remember one Saturday he brought us in and he had this like 1978 Lincoln Town Car hood and it was just this big old massive thing. And he handed us both like pieces of sandpaper and he's like, I need this whole thing sanded down. And we sat there and sanded this thing with, by hand for like hours and hours and hours. And like we were, we, we had did our best and we're looking at it and making sure there's no shiny spots on there. And I'll never forget, it was like five minutes to five o'clock and he walks over, how'd you guys do? And he's looking at it. Okay, not too bad. And then he grabs a power sander and goes, Boom. all right, let's go. I don't know if you can pick up my resentment. Still, still present. One time I was like maybe 12 or 13, it was late night. My dad take, takes me down to the shop. This is after dinner, seven, eight o'clock. And he's welding a quarter panel on like a eight, late eighties town car. I can remember this, this white town car with red interior, red vinyl interior. Do you guys remember those? And um, so this is like 1993, 1994. And he's welding this quarter panel on, that had been wrecked. And so he's got like uh, moving blankets draped over the 
the lush vinyl seats. And, um, you know, but when you're welding, it just throws little sparks, you know? And so those sparks typically like fizz out and then they hit the ground or they will bounce off of something. And they're not super dangerous, but every once in a while you can get like a little burr and that'll start a fire. And so he hands me a water bottle and he tells me to stand behind him and watch out for these little burrs so that this car does not catch on fire, which is a little bit of a high pressure situation for a 13 year old, okay? And so he starts welding, he's welding, sparks are flying everywhere. I'm looking, I'm looking. And then I smell smoke and I'm looking around and I'm not seeing anything. And I look down and a burr, a flaming hot, red hot burr jumped into the cuff of his left pant leg and set his pants on fire. And so I'm squirting, I'm squirting, but the fire is consuming these linen pants faster than I can squirt the fire out. And so I start yelling, dad, dad, fire. And he's like, you get the fire, that's your job. He's welding. And I'm just squirting, squirting, squirting. And I'm like, dad, you are on fire. You know, he flips off the mask and beats out the fire. And um, I'm like, oh, it was like traumatic moment for me. You know what I mean? That's just my dad. That was my childhood. It was like, I think the most telling thing was like three days later, I watched him go to work wearing those same pants. <laughs> like, not only are you dangerous, you are cheap. Get some new pants, man. <laughs> I think about this because I spent a lot of my formative years in my relationship with my dad just working. So like any kid, I just wanted to have fun, get my, work, get my school done and go have fun and do all these things. And I'm still kind of like that. I love leisure. I love the beach. I love eating. I love parties. I love vacation. But my dad taught me to work. And he did that by making me work. And so you can teach a child those lessons and they'll keep doing them when they are old. Somebody say amen. Amen. And I love that Jesus responds in verse 17 to the charges of doing this on the Sabbath, that he is actually in concert engaging in what his father is doing. And this is the justification for why he can do what he's doing, that the Jews are actually the ones who are wrong by rejecting it. And so in verses 19 to 29, Jesus establishes this claim with three defenses in response to their charges. The first of those charges is that he is indeed breaking God's Sabbath law. Each of these charges, Jesus responds to with the words, truly, truly. He says in verse 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Jesus is not my idea. I'm literally just following my father and doing the things that he wants to get done. And think about this for a second. This man has just been healed after being paralyzed for 38 years. How many times in this period of time is he homeless and sleeping in this courtyard, in this promenade, clawing to get to his own healing and losing his sense of self and self-worth and dignity. He has no family. He has no help. He is alone. He's lost his faith, and he's clinging to a pagan ritual and the potential of eventually being into the water. Now he's lost hope completely. And here, his father, his creator, the covenant God of Israel, sends Jesus, Messiah, eternal son of God, on a Sabbath day. Think about the importance of that. Why? Because Sabbath was the gift of God given to his people after they had been delivered from bondage and slavery in Egypt to worship their God and to be his people in the wilderness. And so he goes, you are no longer a slave, you are a son. And so you don't work seven days a week nonstop and not profit. No, instead you have land and dignity and value and that is established through a day off. Isn't that good news? How many of you guys work too much? Raise your hand. How much you know how good a day off feels? God says, here's what I want to give you, a day off. 
And it's an opportunity to trust God because you could work, you could self-profit, but instead you're gonna go, no, I'm gonna honor you. I'm gonna trust in you. And so the Sabbath is this gift. And it was on the Sabbath that God sent Jesus, the son of God, to bring healing to this man. He asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Do you wanna be well? He said, I've got no one. Not today, you've got someone. And so Jesus set him truly free on a Sabbath. It's beautiful. This was part of God's long plan and one of the signs that demonstrated the power of Jesus. Now, Jesus says, I don't don't do this in my own accord, but only what I see the Father doing. And then he says, for, the word for, F-O-R, and he says it four times, F-O-U-R. And look, look at how he establishes what it is he's doing. For whatever the father does, the, that the son does likewise. I am doing my father's will. Verse 20, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he is doing and greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. God wants you to continue to experience Jesus in such a way that you are constantly overwhelmed by God's love for you. If you're not constantly overwhelmed by how much God loves you, you are not paying attention because God has sent Jesus into the world and now the Holy Spirit through his people. He is demonstrating the Father's love again and again and again. Why? Because the Father shows the Son what he's doing. Remember, Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. Why? Because servants don't know what the master's doing, but I'm telling you what he's doing. He's demonstrating the Father's love and he's gonna continue to do greater works. And in fact, these miracles are gonna continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger and cause everyone to marvel. This is what Jesus is after. My dad did the same thing. There were so many things I didn't know. Sometimes he let me learn the hard way. The first time I replaced an engine, I replaced an engine in my car and I had helped my dad do it a bunch of times, cherry picker in the driveway, unbolting stuff, sliding stuff out, saying foul words, all the things. And um, yeah, have you ever tried changing an engine? Good luck. And, and, um, and so we, we've done this a couple of times. I remember the first time he sent me out to do it. And I went out there and um, got this whole engine, top end of an engine. And I put the new top end in. And I was so excited. I was doing it all myself. He hadn't helped me a bit except to give me a little bit of consulting advice. And I went and um, put the head bolts in and I over tightened them and I broke off two of them in the engine. He's like, you didn't use a torque wrench, did you? No. Was I supposed to? Yes, you were. There's a special wrench for that. Thanks, dad for letting me learn the hard way. But he loved me and he taught me all the things that he knew to do. And that's what any good father does, amen? Thirdly, in verse 21, he says, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. And this is starting an important theme in this little section, but that's already a part of John's gospel and will culminate in the death and resurrection of Jesus, Messiah. Here, Jesus says, I am a part of delivering the father's children. I am doing a thing that brings people from death to life. Through me honoring my father and doing his work, people are coming to experience spiritual renewal and new spiritual life, and they are moving from death into life. Just like those Israelites moved from bondage in Egypt into freedom in God's presence. Now, and through Jesus, everyone who believes him is moving from death into life, a sort of deliverance. And then fourthly, verse 22, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. God's saying, I'm delegating all judgment 
to the Son. Why? That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Yes, Jesus is claiming to be equal with God and he's commanding and demanding equal honor because he is the one who will act as judge. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him, which means Jesus is now taking this charge and he's turning around and he's placing it back on the Jews who accuse him. So this is charge number one. Is, is Jesus breaking God's Sabbath law? No, Jesus says he's honoring his Father's will. Do you see this? Secondly, the second charge is that Jesus is misleading God's people. This is inferred, but listen to how Jesus responds in verse 24 with the second truly, truly statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Conversely, Jesus is not misleading people, breaking a commandment and misleading people away from God. No, he's actually revealing who God is and leading people to life in his name. So you're exactly wrong, Jesus says. And in fact, everything Jesus says, we all ought to believe and receive. We live in an era where it's becoming increasingly hard to know who to trust. Somebody say amen. But the one you can trust is the one who hears every word and speaks every word. So Jesus says, if you're hearing my words and you're believing in him who sent me, this is how you receive eternal life. And you do not come into judgment, but have passed from death to life. Romans 8, one to four says it this way. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by our flesh could not do. How? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Isn't it good news that when you believe Jesus and receive his word and his revelation, you pass from death to life and are no longer under judgment. Isn't that a good feeling? If you know it, say amen. Amen. And then the third charge in verse 25, this is what they are charging Jesus with, blasphemy, because he is making himself equal with God. Look at the third, truly, truly, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, So something's about to happen and is now here. It's imminent. It's upon us. We're right up on it. When the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. Now, Jesus here is talking about spiritual death. You see, the scripture writers understand this and you've probably heard some sermons about it, but though you are alive and most of you awake, you are not alive spiritually until you are brought to life through the hearing of, of the words of Jesus. Yeah, amen? So you are born physically alive, but spiritually dead, and you have to be made alive in order to be alive, yes? And so we come into life not knowing what we don't know. Any of you guys ever had this experience where you realized there was a thing you didn't know you didn't know? I I have four children, and I'm leading them and trying to be a good dad. I have a 13-year-old. She's in the front row right now. She knows some things because I've told her that my six-year-old does not know. And there are some things that you should tell your 13-year-old that you should not tell your six-year-old. 
Amen. But there's also a number of things she does not know. And I will have to tell her at the last possible minute. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about? So if you're a good parent, you're continuing to let your kids in on what they need to know when they need to know it. Yes? And here what Jesus is saying is he, he is equal with God. In fact, it's not blasphemy if it is in fact true. And an hour is coming and is now here when a miracle will happen. Those who are spiritually dead will come to life because they will hear the voice of the one true God. And Jesus is that voice. He says in verse 26, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Think about this for a second. God, the father, the creator of all things is independent and eternal in his existence. He has life in himself. All of us did not exist. And then we came to be, and we are alive because God gave us physical life. There was a moment when you went from being dependent upon your mother's oxygenated blood to (gasps) breathing. Yes. And there is a moment when you go from being dead spiritually to hearing the words of Jesus and (gasps) you come alive spiritually. This is how this whole thing works. And Jesus is saying, God has that life in himself. And Jesus also has that life in himself. This is the reason why Jesus could die in our place because death could not hold the one who has life in himself. I love the Lord of the Rings where Gandalf says, a wizard is never late. He arrives precisely when he attends to, right? And this is Jesus too. On the third day, he started breathing and he walked out of the tomb because he's got life in himself. And so he's the one who's been given authority to execute judgment. This is why it's so good to be a Jesus follower. Why? Because we will not stand in judgment because we belong to Jesus. He took the punishment. He bore the blame. He took it away. We are righteous in him. There is no more judgment for us. And then lastly, as he continues in this vein, he uses the same phrase, but now he's talking about a future event. Look at verse 28. Before he said, I'm going to do some signs that are going to make you marvel. And now he goes, don't marvel at this. Verse 28, for an hour is coming, future event, but not is now here. So this is a future event. When all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Now he's talking about physically dead people. They will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Whoa, Jesus is now predicting the the final judgment, the end of all things. And he says, in the same way that when the good news about Jesus is spoken and living ears hear it and dead souls come to life, there will be a day when Jesus will rise up as judge and at his voice, every dead thing will come to life and stand before him to give an account for what they have done in the body. Do you know this? Jesus demonstrates the reality of this power in chapter 11 when he allows Lazarus to die instead of healing him from his sickness and on the fourth day approaches his tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus emerges alive from his tomb. What did that look like, I wonder? You know, he was wrapped in grave clothes. You ever wonder what that scene was like? Did he kind of like... How long before somebody unwrapped him, I wonder? Did they just miraculously fall off and did he have like a graceful exit? Oh, I don't know. I wasn't there. But what I do know 
is that if Jesus hadn't said, Lazarus, come forth, everybody would have come out of that grave because at the voice of Jesus, the dead will rise. This is the power of who Jesus is. This is what he says is coming. And so he refutes the accusations that he is a Sabbath breaker. Nope, he works with his father because he is the son of God and the covenant making God of the Old Testament is in fact his father. He is not misleading the people. In fact, he is telling them the most true thing they've ever heard and the only thing that brings spiritual life. And he is not blaspheming because he is in fact equal with God as God's son. It was just a thing you didn't know you didn't know. Now, what are we supposed to do with that? What's our response? Well, it's embedded in the text already, but I want to point it out to you. John makes it very clear throughout his gospel that the main thing that you are supposed to do with what you've heard about Jesus is believe it. It is demonstrated. It is proven. It comes with eyewitnesses. It is alive. And somewhere on the inside of you, when you hear it, you know it's true. And so you acknowledge that and you believe it. But you don't just believe it because it's not just mere mental assent. You also must receive it. You must believe it and believe it as yours. Isn't there a big difference? Aren't there things you know to be true, but they are not yours? And so you are called to believe and receive. And when you do, what happens next is you become a child of your father and you become to work with him. And the way that gets communicated through John's gospel is with breath. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus in John chapter 20, he went to his disciples. He says, hey, as my father has sent me, so I am sending you. And he breathed on them. <sighs> this would not have worked well during the COVID pandemic, but Jesus did it in the first century. And so he breathed on them. And what did he say? Receive the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, the father in you that you could work with him to bring about his works. The only work that's required of you is that you believe and receive, but now you're going to engage with God and his life-giving spirit. And you're gonna live like Jesus, empowered by the spirit, and you are going to listen to and imitate your father. Who's your father? Who's your father? And if you haven't put your faith in Jesus to receive this good news as your own, then God's not your father yet. Now, here's the thing I want to point out to you. And this is the thing I'm going to geek out about for like three minutes, and then we're going to end, okay? Um, Here's what hit me. In verse 21, we start to see this theme of life and death. In verse 24, it continues. In verse 25, in verse 28, there's this image of resurrection, of moving from life to death, life to death. And it got me thinking about the number eight because all through John's gospel, all these beautiful, cool layers, embedded layers of seven, seven sayings, seven signs, seven I am statements, seven descriptions of Jesus being an I am of a different sort, seven, 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 seven. But there's also a really powerful connection to the number eight. And I don't know if some of you theologians in the room know what it is, but when you see the number eight in the Bible, it's always about new creation. And John's been building this into his gospel from the beginning. He goes, hey, our God is the creator God and the covenant-making God. And so when John goes to talk about Jesus, he starts his gospel with the same words that Genesis begins with. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. And what was the last thing the word said in John's gospel? It is finished. Echoing back to Genesis chapter two and verse one, thus the heavens and the earth were 
finished the whole host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And so John is using this creation language to get your attention to go, guess what? There's a new creation that's happening. How about the interaction when Mary comes to find Jesus and the tomb is empty and she sees Jesus, but she mistakes him for somebody else. And who does she think he is? The gardener. And who was placed in the garden to work it? But Adam and Eve. And here the second Adam is now turning the world into what God intended for it to become. And so this is for you because in new creation, you have a new identity. See what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, 1 John 3, 1. And so we are. Who's your father? Do you see God as your father every day? Or is he distant, aloof, judgmental, unkind, scary to you? No, in Christ, if you believe him, in Christ, if you've received him, if you're walking with him, breath in, breath out, he is your father, just like he was Jesus' father. This matters because you ought to be living with him in a way to look for the ways that he's at work. Do you know this? The disciples experienced this. Remember when Peter and and, uh, John were going to pray? At the third hour, they're going to pray and they pass by a man who was asking for alms and he thought they were gonna give him some money. And the text says, and they fixed their eyes on him. It made me wonder what what it is that they both saw right there. I think they saw the father at work. And what did they say to him? Silver and gold have I none, but what I have, I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God, get up. Do you see that? How many moments are we missing in our lives of the demonstrated power of God because we're not walking with God as our father? We're not walking with him and seeing the way he wants to change us, transform us, grow us, minister through us, answer our prayers, do amazing things. Greater works, Jesus said, we would do than him because he's going to the father. Do you believe that? Well, I guarantee you, you won't experience it until you begin to see yourself as a child of God. And answer the question, who who is your father? Oh, my father in heaven. Secondly, why are you here? Why are you still here? A lot of us treat the gospel like it's a thing we received and believed, and now we're going to go to heaven when we die. And everything between now and then is basically up for grabs. But you have a purpose. This is where this breath comes in. Do you know this? This idea of the eighth. You know, Jesus said, receive the Holy Spirit. The other gospels and in Acts detail the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. But do you know that it wasn't an arbitrary day that the Holy Spirit came on the people of Israel? It wasn't. It was not arbitrary the day that Jesus was chosen as the Passover lamb. It wasn't arbitrary the day that he died on the cross. It wasn't arbitrary the day, the eighth day, the Lord's day, twice John mentions that on the first day of the week that Jesus was resurrected. It was not arbitrary. And it was not arbitrary that the Holy Spirit came 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because the feast of Pentecost, meaning 50, is the feast of the harvest how God plans to bring in a people for himself from the nations. And he does so by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, receive the Holy Spirit. And he breathed on them. And what is the day of Pentecost? But the eighth day after seven weeks, seven times seven is 49 plus one is 50 day of Pentecost. Do you see what John is doing? He's trying to show you that God is doing a new thing and you are a part of it. 
You are called to work with God. You are called to speak for God. You are called to be filled with the spirit of God and watch him bring in a harvest of souls. How exciting is that? That means every interaction in your life ought to be tempered by who your father is. And then lastly, you are in a covenant relationship. And John also goes to great detail. And we're out of time, so I can't show you all the ways, but this is pretty cool. He goes to great detail to show you that you are in a covenant. How many of you Old Testament theologians know what day a male child is circumcised on? The new creation. You're born seven days as a human, and now you're in a covenant relationship with God on the eighth day and moving forward. Now, aren't we grateful that baptism is now the replacement of circumcision in the Christian church? Wouldn't that be a hard sell for me? I'd be like, I want you to give your life to the Lord. And all of you guys, the ladies, you can go have your seats. If the men, you will just come with me. We have a brief outpatient surgery for you in the, in the back here. It only hurt for a minute. What? Whoa, whoa. But in the Old Testament, circumcision was the sign of the covenant relationship with God. Now, God prophesied through Jeremiah, through Ezekiel, he was going to do a new thing. He was going to pour out his spirit in Joel chapter two. He was going to make a new covenant, not like the old covenant, a new one where you were going to get not just something cut off, but something put in a new heart. Do you understand? And so this is that eighth day relationship. And this is what you were, this is what you were invited into. And this is the thing that got me the most. Now I'm done right here, but check this out. Jesus did seven miracles in the first half of John's gospel called the book of the signs. He turned water into wine at the wedding in Cana. He healed a nobleman's son in Capernaum. He heals the man in chapter five at the pool of Bethsaida. He feeds 5,000 on the east side of the Galilee. He walks on water, neat trick. He opens the eyes of a man born blind, and then he raises Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11, right? Count them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. But in the book of glory, in the second half of John's gospel, Jesus demonstrates a new and more powerful eighth sign. And what is it? The resurrection of the son of God and the beginning of new life in a new covenant in his name. Listen, listen, what we are talking about today is news that transforms. It is news that saves. It is news that empowers. It gives you a new identity and a new purpose and new relationships. This is the new work of God. And our world needs new. Somebody say amen. Our world is suffering under an epidemic of fatherlessness. But God has dispatched a kingdom of children who are led by their father and do his work in the world. Isn't it good news? Isn't this what the world needs? But it has to start with us. It has to start with us knowing I am God's child. I am here for a purpose. I am held in covenant love and nothing can tear me away from my God. And so what am I going to do differently? I want you to receive it as you believe it. And then daily, I want you to breathe it. I want your relationship with your father to be as second nature as in, out, in, out. Isn't it beautiful how our breathing is both involuntary and voluntary? Have you ever gotten yourself into one of those moments? Maybe you woke up in the middle of the night, you checked your phone, you went to the bathroom, you laid back down and your heart rate has gone up a little bit from resting. And so you're breathing a little bit deeper than you would when you were sleeping. And you're trying to control your own breath and just 
small breaths. And then you have to go like this. <gasps> you ever done that? Am I think, overthinking it? You guys are like, oh, I've never done it. It'll happen tonight, watch. <laughs> you ever try to like control your own breathing? And then there's this weird moment when you have to like, like turn off the control of your own breaths and let it go back to involuntary. Have you ever had that experience? And this is not that much different from what it's like sometimes where we have to start our day with some intention. We have to go, all right, Lord, I acknowledge you. You're my father. You're doing a thing in me. I'm a new person and I'm gonna live as that person. And you're, you're calling me to do some things for you today with you. I'm gonna be right at the forefront of where you're at work. And like, I'm yours and I'm a part of something that's new and big. And these are my people. And so you gotta like take some weird, awkward force breaths in, out, in, out, in, out. But here's what you'll find, that that involuntary breath will take over and the Holy Spirit will lead you. And you will find yourself going exactly where God wants you to be. Amen? Now, I know that there's some people listening to me and you just can't wait to get out of here. But you're also feeling things you didn't expect to feel. And I want you to let that moment pass. Maybe this stuff is distant, disconnected, unfamiliar, but there's something on the inside of you that knows this is the truest stuff I've ever heard. I don't understand it, but I know that I know that I know that it's true. That is the gift of faith that God has given to you right now. Our faith is a faith in search of understanding. You'll never stop growing in your understanding who God is and who you are in him and what this all means. But that faith is the stuff that saves you. But it requires you to take an active trust in God. And I'm gonna invite you to do that right now. I want you to choose in this moment that you're gonna respond to the truth about Jesus that you're hearing and you're going, I am going to turn my entire life over to this King Jesus and I'm gonna have God as my father. Today, you can say, who is your father? My father is not just Ray Jarvis from front row and first service. That's my natural father. My father is the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of all things. And his son is my savior and my older brother and I am his covenant child today and every day. And that can be true for you. You can pass this day from death to life and begin this journey working with your father. Amen. And so can we just pray? And if that's you, I just want to ask you to raise your hand real quick. Stick it up. And I want to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you right before we leave. I'm going to show you a little prayer that you should pray. Good. Good. Raise your hand. If that's you, don't let the moment pass. Okay. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for every person under the sound of my voice. God, I thank you for the miracle that you do of bringing dead things to life. God, we know that one day your voice will speak and every human being will emerge to stand in resurrected form in your presence. And we will stand in judgment before you. And for those of us in Christ, we will receive the verdict of innocent, not, not guilty, but righteous in Christ. And we will be made yours forever. God, I pray that we would be a kingdom of priests on the earth today, that as we give ourselves to you every day and walk with you as father, that like our King Jesus, we would work as you are working, that we will do what you have called us to do and that we will be your witnesses on the earth. God, I pray for every person in my hearing that is experiencing that draw and that tension and that, that faith is beginning to build. God, I pray that they would confess with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in their hearts that you raised him from the dead, that they might be saved. God, I pray they would turn to you with everything in them and follow after you. And I thank you that we can trust you to save them and bring them to life in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Hey, our prayer teams are gonna be up here. If you prayed that prayer with me, I'm gonna invite you to come up.